Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. Well, hey, good morning, church. I'm glad you're here this morning. I, this is what we like to call, um, who all can Joey wave to when they walk in late for second service? So that's why we moved the sermon up. Um, now we're, we're starting a brand new series today, and I think it really lends itself better if we do worship at the end, and it'll make better sense as we as we walk along, uh, along here. Hey, thanks for not sleeping in this morning. I appreciate that and being here. And I mean, the rain is just... My, my, my daughters came in and said, Mom had to wake us up this morning. I, and my kids wake up early, and they're like, why? And I said, well, the range is just so soothing and so dark. And so my oldest goes, I know, I woke up, and I was like, it's 5 in the morning, Dad. I was like, it's not 5 in the morning. So anyway, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for joining us online, for those who are online. Uh, today, we are starting a brand new series um, called Distinctives. And so how many of you guys have ever seen The Wizard of Oz before? Wizard of Oz? Yeah, so one of my favorite scenes in The Wizard of Oz is when Dorothy and uh, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion are standing before, they finally make it to Oz and they're standing before the wizard and he's just floating head and it's all scary and everything. And then there's the little rat dog, right? The Toto. So, and, and, the, and Toto goes over and he pulls the curtain and all of a sudden you see it's just a man. And it changes the entire dynamic of the relationship there. And you find out the wizard's actually a really nice guy and no one's afraid of them anymore. And, um, and everyone's like, oh, and everyone goes happy, right? And the guy you know, the, gets the, the, the medallion and the certificate and all that kind of stuff. And Dorothy gets to go home. And it's, it's just great. And, and it, it just changed everything. You could see this is who the wizard actually is. It's not smoke and mirrors. This is just who he is. I, I feel like for a lot of people, especially in today's culture, I feel like the church is kind of shrouded in mystery. I feel like a lot of people think they know what the church is, but really when it gets down to the nitty gritty of what is it that makes the church so unique and distinct, it's kind of like they sit there and they see the floating green head and they don't realize that, no, it's, it's so much more than something like that. And so today what we're gonna do is begin the process of just pulling back the curtain and asking ourselves, what is it that makes the church so unique? What does that make the church so distinctive from anything else in the world? Why is the church such a success over thousands of years? Like why, why, why? And and here's the thing that I want to be very careful of. I love the diversity of our church. I really do. But here's the thing is that a lot of people, probably all of you online or here in the room would assume, hey, I know what church looks like. Because most of us have grown up in church, or at least you've been to church in some level or capacity. You went to your grandparents' church growing up or whatever. And so you go, I know exactly what church looks like. The problem is that this series is not about tradition of how you grew up. Some of you may have grown up Lutheran, some of the Pentecostal, some of you, uh, you know, Assemblies of God, some of you Southern Baptist, some of you Catholic, I don't know. And so your idea of church might look different. And so this series is not about tradition as much as it is about biblical precedent on what it is that the, church, that the Bible says makes the church distinct. Think of it like this. If I go out into the world and I pull 100 different people, what does marriage 
look like? I'm going to get a lot of different answers. Because everyone has a model that they looked up to, whether it was a good or bad model. Everyone has someone that you go, that's what marriage looks like. So for example, if I go to someone and they go, I saw my mom get beat by my dad. That's, that's marriage. Marriage is abuse. But for some, it might be, no, I saw my parents. They were so embarrassing. They were like mushy, gushy, you know, holding hands, always kissing in public. And for some of us, you go and you go, if you touch me as, as your wife or my husband, in pu- I, I, I'll cut your arm off, right? It's like, don't touch me, all right? And so it really depends on how you were raised or what your role model was. And that's why before I marry anyone, we do biblical counseling, marriage counseling, because it doesn't fail. Listen, we're good at two things here at South Lakes. We're good at getting married and having babies. We have a lot of babies, and I've done a lot of marriages in six years, okay? And so I sit down with a lot. If you have been married less than six years, there is a 99% chance I have probably married you, right? That's just how it is, and I get that. But when I always sit down with two couples for that first service or whatever, or that first session, I always say, tell me what you think marriage is. And they never have the same thing. Because mom and dads, for both of them, were different. If you came from a divorced family, it's going to look way different. If you came from a very affectionate family, it's going to look different. If you came from a very aloof type family, it's going to look different. It's just different. And so what you have to say is say, so these are your expectations for marriage. Now, what does the Bible say? And that's why we go to the Bible. And that's why here at South Lakes, especially in our, in our covenant that we go through with everyone, it says the Bible's always going to be the tiebreaker. Because when so many different perspectives or so many different uh, opinions in the room, it's got to be the Bible that wins. And so that's what this series is about. What does the Bible say makes the church so unique and distinct from everything else? And so that's what we're going to walk through this morning. But before we do, let's pray. And, and then let's dive in. And then Grant and the band will come back up and we'll end in worship. Okay, and it all makes sense in the end. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes, even online, if you would do this for me. I would like you to pray these two prayers. The first one in your heart, would you pray this? God, help me to be present in this moment. And then secondly, would you pray, God, will you speak to me personally? And Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And God, as I, I, as I begin a unique series here, as we're going to be really walking through the church and why it's so unique, Father, I pray that you would help us to have ears open, and that we would be receptive to what scripture has to say. That we would be willing to be challenged. That we would be willing to listen. And that God, that you would transform our ideas of why is the church so distinct from everything else. I pray that if there's people who have bitter tastes in their mouth because of past church hurts. I pray that this series may be a series of restoration. I pray if there's people that might have a different completely opposite biblical view of, of church, that that would be changed during the course of this series. And Father, I just pray that in all things that we would, we would leave the month of August on the same page, and that we would understand why the mission of South Lakes is of the utmost importance and what it is that sets us apart to make that mission that we can accomplish that. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise in Jesus' name and all God's people said. 
Amen. So your sermon, uh, your, uh, hopefully you got some notes on the way in, or if you go to Version, you can find notes there if you're joining us online. I want you to turn to the book of Acts this morning. We're going to be going through the book of Acts very quickly this morning. I'd love to hear some pages rustling or at least some phones out so we can see some stuff. And we're going to look at the book of Acts and we're going to look, today is all about church origins. And we're going to find out what is the origin of the church and what is it that set the church apart in the beginning. And so we're going to be looking. And so the, your first part of your notes doesn't go through any of this, doesn't have any scripture references on this. So you may want to jot these things down. They won't be up on the screen. Okay, so here is where we're going to start. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. So Jesus just rose from the dead. He spent 40 days on earth, and he's now about to ascend back to the Father. And here it says in verse 6. So when they, meaning the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and he, and he began to spoke. So we see here the beginning of the church. It's 131 people in an upper room at a, a good old fashioned prayer meeting. It's 11 disciples and 120 individuals. And they're sitting there and they're praying and they've been given one instructions. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. We go to chapter two. And we see that on the day of Pentecost, where all the Jews were flocking in to Jerusalem from all over the country to be able to celebrate Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples and Peter stands up and Rico just read this a few minutes ago and he, Peter preached the first gospel proclamation message with the, empowered by the Spirit and we find out that three thousand people were added to the church that day. Now, let me just wrap your minds around this. The average church size in the United States of America is somewhere between 50 and 75 members. That's it. That's the average church in the United States. Churches aren't huge, all right? In fact, if you just go off of stats, our church is one of, it's in the top 10% largest churches in the United States. That's ridiculous, but that's just how it is. In this one moment, a megachurch was formed. 3,000 Jews gave their lives to Jesus, and it did not end there. Look in Acts chapter 4. It says in Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came up to him. And I love this, all right? Because when you're doing what the Lord does, you're always going to 
tick someone off. I love it. It says, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. They put them into custody until the next day for it was already evening. But here's the problem. The damage was already done because in verse four, it says, but many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And that was just the men. So here's what we got. We started with 131 people in an upper room and we're, we're several weeks down the road here. And what we have now is we have a church of somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. That's huge. But yet they were walking in disobedience because Jesus's closing commands was this. You will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's a little thing. I don't know if you know this about God. God will get you to move one way or the other. He is. He's gonna get you to move one way or the other. All right, he would prefer to go the obedience route. That would be great. I would love if my kids always did everything the first time I said. My parents, I mean, my kids will be moved. My dad was great at getting me to move because I was not a mover, all right? My dad's right hand was a mover, all right? And when that didn't work, my dad's belt was a mover, all right? But he moved me and he would always say, son, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. And I was looking and be like, what are you talking about, dad? You're this one swinging. And then when I spanked my kid the first time, like really, like when she got old enough and I looked at my hand and I was like, holy cow, that really does hurt more than it hurt, you know? And so anyway, God will move us, right? And so the church was doing great. And this is something that the church does. We become so inward focused that we go, life is so good right now. And God says, yeah, but you're not doing what I said. So look in chapter eight, Acts eight. So the chief persecutor of the church was a guy by the name of Saul. And it says this. So this is after Stephen was stoned for his faith. He was the first martyr. And it says in verse one of chapter eight, so Saul approved of his, meaning Stephen's execution. And so there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And in verse four says this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love it. Because these people were separated and scattered from their home base, from their their, their, their village, from Jerusalem. And they didn't go hide in a hole they didn't go lick their wounds and pout. They didn't waze their fist up in the, head, in the heavens and go, God, I curse you. You know what they did? They went out and they preached. And they preached the gospel. And as they did, as you go through Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, you begin to see churches pop up throughout the area of Samaria, Damascus, Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea. They begin to pop up. And then there was a pivotal turning point. And it's in Acts chapter 11. Go look in Acts chapter 11 with me. Acts chapter 11, we're gonna begin reading in 19. And so here's the thing, it keeps going out. So I use this example in the first service. Let's just say that South Lakes is the first church ever in the world. The Pentecost has just come and here we are and we're happy being South Lakes Church. And persecution comes, the police come in, they're busting through the doors, we're, we're scattering. So it's like we're gonna go from Southwest Oklahoma City and we begin to see churches pop up in 
in Norman, in Noble, in Lindsay, in Chickasha, in Duncan. We go north to, to Edmond. We go to Guthrie. We get to Tulsa. We just keep expanding. The circle gets bigger and there's more and more disciples made. We head out um, to Clinton. We get all the way to Altus. We hit Kansas border. We get to Texas because Lord knows they need Jesus, right? And so we just keep expanding the circle and that's what's going on. And there's a pivotal point in Acts 11 that happens. Look at verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And here's the thing. They spoke the word to no one except the Jews. So they ran around and they only shared the gospel with people that looked like them. That's a different sermon for a different time. But verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh-oh. We're starting to preach to people that don't look like us. And it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And it sent ripples all the way back to the disciples. It says in 22, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So what did they do? They sent Barnabas. They sent someone to go check it out. They sent him to Antioch. And when Barnabas got there and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas arrives on the scene and is like, wow, this is a really great church made up of non-Jewish people. This is awesome. And he goes, we should continue to invest in them because they definitely, they, they, the Jews at least had, had the, 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 the scriptures. Man, non-Jews, I mean, they're, they're, they're starting from scratch, right? And so they're like, we gotta get some help in here. Well, during this time, Saul, the great persecu- uh, the persecutor who, who okayed the execution of Stephen, he had a little, well, we'll call it a one-on-one powwow with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, uh, Saul gave his life to Jesus and he became the greatest missionary church planner the world's ever known. And so Barnabas goes, we've got to get Saul because there's no one that knows scriptures better than Saul. There's no one smarter than Saul. There's no one who's had a more radical life change than Saul. So they get Saul, they bring him to, to, uh, to Antioch and for a year, Barnabas and Saul, they just pour into the church. And here's what happens to, this, the, to, to the epicenter of Christianity. It shifts. It shifts from Jerusalem in the south and it's now moved to the north. And it's in the north and that is now the base of operations. And you got all these Gentiles, all these non-Jews and they're being taught. And they're like, we've got to continue to advance this church farther. And so what do they do? They have a missionary commissioning service. And they call Saul and Barnabas together and go, we're gonna send you as missionaries into the world. And they're sent out and they embark on this journey. They plant churches in Cyprus and all throughout Asia Minor. And then what happens? As all great bands do, they broke up, all right? 
Paul and Barnabas, they broke up. They had a disagreement over, over this young kid, all right? And so this young kid deserted Paul. He didn't like it. And so he's like, well, you, you can keep him. I'm going to keep going. And so Paul is sent out again and he begins to go farther west. He goes into Philippi. He goes into Thess- Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus. I've got a map here. It's a crude little map, but it's a map nonetheless. Of, you see Jerusalem is in the bottom there, uh, uh, you see the uh, Judea is right there and the right is Jerusalem and you just see the arrows of how the church just expanded. It just kept going out and out. You see Antioch there in the north right above Syria in bold letters. And, 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 and so everything began to change and you had this base of operations and we just saw the church explode. And then when you go throughout the whole New Testament, the New Testament is letters that's written mainly by Paul to all these church plants to encourage them, to disciple them, to train them up, to call them out, right? Because you've got new believers and there would be new churches that would start in all of these regions and all of these towns and all these house churches would start but they're all new believers. And so Paul would stay for a while and he'd train up some men to become elders and he would, have, he would leave and he would write letters. There was no social media, there was no podcast, there was no TV, there was none of that. So they would write letters. And so Acts lays out the entire course of, of, of the church in the New Testament and the rest of the New Testament is words of encouragement, affirmation and correction. And so when you start diving into the totality of the New Testament, you begin to see that there are some very big distinctions that sets the church apart from everything else, right? This wasn't the first religious cult that started up. This wasn't the first thing where someone was worshiping a deity, but this was different from anything that had come before. And so this is where your notes are gonna come into play. And this is really where we're gonna park around this. There is one primary distinction when I look at the New Testament of what separates the church apart. Here it is. The church is a community of redeemed believers who confess Jesus as Lord while submitting to the truth of Scripture. That is your primary distinction of the local church. It is a community of redeemed, meaning these are not just random people that are coming together so that we can sing songs and throw a dollar in the offering plate and leave. These are people who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through, but through him, and who have confessed Jesus as Lord, and they have asked Jesus to become king of their life, and now what are they gonna do? They're gonna submit to him. Why? Because Jesus says, you've, you you need to submit your life to me. You need to submit your life to the words. Let the word of God, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it divides, it cuts deep. It's a mirror that sees into who you are. And it's these things that is at the core of the church. And really what this does is it broadens our horizon to say that our focus is no longer on the end of my life, it's on eternity. So for example, as a dad of four girls, my job as a dad is not just to pour into my kids so they become fully functioning human beings in society when they grow up. That is part of my job. But the big goal of my job is to point them to Jesus so that their eternity is set. That's what my job is. But I don't have that if I'm not redeemed. So my view is very limited. It's like I'm looking through the peephole of the door and I can only see this much and Jesus kicks the door open and you can see the whole front yard and you go, wow, that's life. That's what the church is. The church is redeemed believers who confess Jesus and we submit. 
The church is not a country club that you join to be catered to. It's not a humanitarian organization like Feed the Children where go in and feed people and leave. It's not a sports team that you try out for and then we compete against the other teams. It's not any of those things. It's a group of redeemed believers who are submitting to the word of God. There's a secondary distinction though. The church is a place where God's presence is evident and his spirit can be felt moving in a tangible way among his people. And I think this is probably where the disconnect happens a lot, especially in westernized culture with churches. I don't know out of however many churches are in the United States, all right? It's an ever-revolving number. How many times can you walk into a place where the saints are gathered and you can say, I feel God's presence in this place? Or you walk in and you go, it smells musty and like a funeral home. We feel the presence of God and we feel him moving in a tangible way. There's a joy among the people. There's a spirit of cooperation and unity among the people, even when we disagree. So whether you're pro-mask or anti-mask, or you're pro-stick or you're you're anti-stick, who cares? Because we can come together and we can be unified. And we can disagree. And we can have spats but we're unified because our goal is eternity. Because that's, we have disagreements. We can disagree on reformed theology. We can disagree on Arminianism. We can disagree on soteriology, ecclesiology, and all these things. And all these things, you don't, you're like, I don't even know what those words are. He's just making those up. We can disagree on all those things. But we're unified under the umbrella of Jesus. And he's the one who gives us our marching orders. And our marching orders is eternity. I love Frontline. Frontline Church is, is a church that um, has done a lot of good. And I think they're about 15, 20 years old. I love their mission statement at Frontline. Sister Church down in Oklahoma City. It's to push back darkness and to advance the kingdom. That's the mission of the church. To push back darkness and advance the kingdom. And we see that. The problem is this. Several years ago, there was an uh, author and a statistician by the name of David Kinnaman. And he wrote a book that was very popular called Unchristian. And so in his book, Unchristian, David Kinnaman, who is a believer himself, wanted to research young Americans, teens to early 30s, basically the millennials. And he wanted to know, how do you view the church? Now, I don't have time to put all the stats up there, but here were the top four ways that millennials in the United States view the church. He sees us, they see us as 91% anti-homosexual, 85% hypocritical and judgmental, 78% old-fashioned. I love some of these other ones, let me just give them. 75% too involved in politics, 72% out of touch with reality, 70% insensitive to others, and then my favorite one is 68% boring, which I, I, I was actually one of that 68%. So, I mean, I, sometimes church is boring, it can be. You walk in, you're like, geez, Louise, is Jesus not alive in this place? What's interesting is that in Kinnaman's book, the same demographic group were very interested in spirituality. So Kinnaman's point of the book was this, how can you be interested in spirituality, but you don't like the church? And this is what their response was, is that they see the church as very unlike Christ. Tom Rainer, he's the former president of Lifeway. Uh, it's a publishing wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, 
bleeds Baptist blue, all right? He's very into Southern Baptist and done a lot of good work for Christianity, evangelical Christianity in the United States. He did an unofficial Twitter poll several years ago and he put this question out there. He said, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Baptist? And these were the top 10 of his unofficial Twitter poll. Legalism, potluck dinners, <laughs> immersion, John the Baptist, traditional, Bible, outdated, Southern, boring again, and conservative. Now that's an unofficial thing. The point that I'm trying to make is this, is that the church in, in Acts was very distinct in such a way that people were like, I've got to have that. And you can't tell me that they weren't standing up against social injustices and they weren't standing up against sin, but there was a distinction about them that we seem to have lost here in the United States. And I'm wondering, where has it gone? We are known for our distinctiveness. We're just known for all of the negative distinctiveness. So what is it? How can the church get back to being distinct in a positive way in order to reach a lost and dying world? And I believe that the answer is found in what our primary distinction is. Daniel, would you put that primary distinction back up there, sir? The primary distinction was simply this. It's a community of redeemed believers who confess Jesus as Lord while, what's that next word, church? Uh, let's do it again. Community of, of, of redeemed believers who confess Jesus as Lord while to the truth of Scripture. I believe the answer to the question is found in the word submitting. You see, when God's people stop submitting to God's word, we're forced to turn to our, in, to our own power in order to make a difference in the world. We're forced to try to do things on our own. The problem is that humanity is incapable of reaching the real problem that's going on with man. That's only a spiritual thing that can handle that. So for example, when we turn away from submitting to God's word, then we come up with really cool organizations like Habitat for Humanity. Look, I'm all for building a house for someone. But people need more than just a house. People need a savior. Listen, I'm all for going to the poorest countries in Africa and digging water wells, and I'm all for the, the people that are way smarter than me that come up with the drinking straws that you can buy at Sam's that you can stick in like dirt, right? And it filters out 99.9% .9 of germs and you can drink that water. I'm all for that. But you know what? People need more than drinking water. People need Jesus. See, I, there are some bad apples out there, but I think overall people like to help. I do. And so when we stop doing the things that the Lord calls us to, then we turn to the things that we can do in our own power. And that's just try to meet the needs of people. Listen, if Jesus would have just come and healed a bunch of people and done a lot of cool things and that was it, we would not be here today. There's nothing special about Jesus when he's doing that. Yay, you raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a cool trick. I like that. Yeah, yay, Jairus' daughter. Man, Jairus really appreciates that. Man, you, you made the, the, the deaf man hear and the blind man see, the crippled man walk. Why did Jesus do that? To have opportunity to be able to meet the real need that's going on. And so I think it all comes down to submission. And the reality is this, is that submission is not an option when it comes to Christianity. Like if, if the Lord is king, then he demands us to submit. And as his church the vehicle for whom he cho he's chosen to share Jesus with the lost and dying world, our only real option is submission. But when we stop submitting, we really get off the train off the tracks. And so 
what does submission look like? Well, every church has its own little ditty, right? That they go, well, this is what submission looked like. And they come up and it's called a mission statement or it's a vision or whatever. And so six years ago, you know, um, at Van's pig stand, as we were, as I, we were starting South Lakes, I was like, Lord, I just, man, what, what do we need to do? You know, I don't need to reinvent the wheel, but what is it that, that we need to, a pithy little way or something that we can just really gravitate towards? And this is where the mission statement came from. And our mission statement is no different than anyone else's mission statement. At least it shouldn't be. All churches' mission statements should pretty much be the same. And so let's just walk through what submission looks like at South Lakes Church and how getting back to being submissive to the word of God is going to make us uh, distinct. So at South Lakes Church, the first thing when it comes to submission is, like, is this, and this is your first full big fill in the blank, is that we believe that submission looks like this. We want to be at radically devoted to God. Radically devoted to God. Now, I want to go back, if you're in your Bible still, I want to go back to Acts chapter 2 where Rico read. And I want us to look specifically what happens after 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus and what it was that set them apart and made them distinct where 5,000 people just a little bit later gave their lives to Jesus. And then why when the church scattered because of persecution, they told others and they gave their lives to Jesus. So here we go. In verse 42, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I love this word devoted themselves. If you go look in the Greek, the word devoted means to persevere or to continually be in. In other words, they weren't just listening on a Sunday morning. They were plunging into God's word personally. They were not complacent in their knowledge and understanding of scripture, but they understood as the early church that true transformation only happens through God's word. And so there's a couple things when we're looking to acquiesce to the word of God, when we're looking to submit to the word of God, specifically when it comes to the church, a very unique thing about the church is this, is that the church needs to be organized under qualified and competent leadership. It's gotta be. I'm listening to a podcast right now of a former mega, me, uh, mega church pastor who had 15,000 plus people in his church. And man, you can communicate really well, but he got, man, he got some things really wrong at times. And the church shut down just like that when he resigned. And when I talk to church planners in that region of the United States, even today, and this was seven years ago when the church shut down, they will go, we still feel the residual effects of the megachurch shutting down and the church hurt that happened. You know, there is no hurt deeper than church hurt. Church hurt can get you more than anything because those are the people that should love you the most. But those are the people that can kick you the hardest. And then when you're down, they'll kick you again. It should be organized under qualified and competent leadership. This is what happens. 3,000 people gather lives of Jesus. And he says, and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. So what does that look like? It means that we need to have qualified, competent people that are called to do what Ephesians 4 tells us, to equip the saints for the work of service. Like, my job is not to do your job. My job is to equip us so that we can all go out and be the church. My job, along with the other elders, is to protect the church. So when the Bible talks about when, sh when wolves come in dressed in sheep's clothing, it happens all the time in the church, the elders meet the wolf at the door and we kindly escort them out. We protect the church. 
And we want to lead the congregation in order to make wise decisions. I love it. In Acts 6, right, there was widows and they were, the church in Jerusalem was so big. And this happens, right? People fall through the cracks. It just happens. And there was, the, the group came and said, our widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And so what did the elders do? They led the church to find, well, who are some qualified men that we can set apart that can make sure this doesn't happen? And then they equipped the church to make those decisions, they're organized and are qualified, competent leadership who's going to point people to Scripture and they're going to say it how it is and they will not apologize for what Scripture has to say. I don't know if you love me or hate me and it probably depends on what Sunday or even Monday it is that you call you find me. But I hope that you would know that as your pastor or as any elder, they've all shared this platform with me, that we will always tell you the truth according to Scripture. We will always point you to truth because our job is not to be your best friend. Our job is to equip you because the world sucks. And it's hard. And it's only scripture. It's only submitting to the word of God. That's the only thing that gets through. And so we see this. But we also see that radical devotion is also worshiping. Look in verse 47. It says that they were praising God. God. So we regularly, like on a Sunday morning, we gather to hear God's word rightly preached. We talked about that. And then the only response that we can give is we respond in worship. That's why we pushed worship to the end here in just a second is because when we come to scripture, when we come to church, if the word's being rightly preached, then here's what's gonna happen. Jesus is gonna be exalted. And when Jesus is exalted, you're gonna look and you're gonna go, wow, I, I just forgot. This week was a really crummy week. Man, I'm so glad Jesus is awesome. And what's your response to worship? I'm so grateful that Grant Adams is our worship leader at, at South Lakes. Man, he, he, his heart for worship is second to none. And I love that his personal mission statement is that he wants to make sure that all of us over the course of the next 18 months and beyond is just fall more passion in love with Jesus and to worship him with our whole heart. And it's, Joey's vernacular of his mission statement, but that's what he wants to do. I love that. But the only way that that's gonna happen is if the word of God is rightly taught and we submit and go, wow, I see that. You're worthy of my praise. Radical devotion. Here's the second thing. Look in verse 44. It says, and they and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the second thing, and this is what we say around here, is that they were relentlessly committed to true community. They were relentlessly committed to true community. In particular, we see that the, church, the beginning of the church, that they obeyed the great commandment to love. They did. They lived life intentionally. They were gathering in their homes. If you have a need, they were gonna meet it. They were relational, and they were interested in the well-being of one another in every way, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual, material, emotional. And here's the thing, it didn't mean that they had to be best friends. It just meant that we are knitted together. I use that phrase a lot here at South Lakes. Our hearts are knitted together because of Jesus. And I don't have to be best friends with the people that my heart's knitted together. I don't but I do need to care for them. I need to love them. I need to love who they are. And it's the love for one another, even in the times when everyone else is leaving, that sets believers apart. So I, I grew up Southern Baptist, and one of the greatest things that Southern Baptists do is this branch called disaster relief. 
So disaster relief, if you ever see in the news someone running around in, uh, in yellow uh, polos, okay? Um, that's disaster relief. And so we've got uh, th- uh, uh, stations set up all over the United States. And when there's a disaster that happens in the world, the, the, the Southern Baptists, they, they come together and everyone has their own little niche. There's a chainsaw ministry and a, and a food and all that stuff, all right? And they go anywhere in the world. And typically, disaster relief is one of the first, if not the first, help on the ground after something happens. That's not the impressive part. They're always the last ones to leave. In fact, when you talk to people that work in disaster relief, we have some people in our church that are on disaster relief teams. Those are the things where people come up to them and say, everyone else has left us. Why are you guys still here? Well, let me share. And you're able to share the gospel. I'm here to love you. And it's that intentional act of love that opens the door for them to be able to be open to the gospel. That is what set the church apart, is they were committed to community and they loved each other. And people saw that in an age where people were trying to step over others to get to the front of the line, the church said, I'll put you first. And they were relentlessly committed to true community. The third thing is this. Let's look in verse 47. So they were praising God. We talked about that. And they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the last thing is, is they were remarkably passionate for the lost. So this was just a little ditty, a little, a little cute little thing that I came up with last year. And I thought, oh, this would be a cool way to do this. And so this holds 1,200 ping pong balls. And, um, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know. Let's say there's 300 ping pong balls in there. I really don't know, okay? Um, but this is all meant to have us have eyes open to those around us, right? That we want to see a lost and dying world the way that Jesus sees a lost and dying world. And we want to invite and we want to share. And so all the white ping pongs represent personal invitations to church and the red ones represent where people have shared the gospel. And we just got back from our three-day staff retreat and I share this. I, I don't have hard numbers to back this up, but I really don't think I'm wrong in this. I firmly believe that in the first seven months of South Lakes in 2021, we have invited more people and shared the gospel more in these seven months than the previous five years combined. I do believe that. In fact, if, as long as no one's lying to me, I don't know why any of you would be lying to me about this. There are tons of people that are like, I just I keep forgetting to put a ping pong ball in. I mean, there should be so much more ping pong balls because I know what's going on, the active invites and the active, and it's the red ones that really get me excited, right? I love inviting people to church, but man, when you get to share the gospel, when those seeds of hope are planted in people, Man, there is a call for the church to obey the Great Commission to do two things, to evangelize and to make disciples. And that's why the Lord added to the church daily. It wasn't enough that they were just submitting to the word of God and they were listening to to, 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 uh, the godly uh, men who were rightly preaching the word of God. It wasn't just because they were loving one another. It's because when the opportunity came, they were ready to share the hope that they had inside of them. They were ready to share. And by the way, persecution was going on all over the place. Like prison was a very real thing. Very real thing. We were playing 
uh, would you rather on staff retreat, like during downtime? And so I asked the question, and I, you know, I just like random would you rathers, all right? So I asked the question, hey, uh, would you rather be a martyr who's burned to death at the stake? Or would you rather be a martyr who was sewn up in animal skin and thrown in the middle of the Colosseum for animals to eat for fun? Here's the reason I share that. I share that to say that the early church did not allow anything to stop them from being remarkably passionate for the lost. Now, I, I never want to be burned to death. <laughs> Gosh, don't, you so, I'm not claustrophobic, but I think if you sew me up in animal skin, I'm probably going to freak out a little bit. I'm just telling you. The point is this, is that that stuff was real and it was going on. And the church exploded. It was like pouring gasoline on the fire. It was a passion they had because they knew what God had done in their lives. And the Lord was adding people to the church daily. Church has to be an evangelistic community where the gospel is constantly made visible through two things, proclamation and action. This is the greatest area of disobedience in my life, I know, and this is the greatest area that God has stretched me in in the, first, in the six years of South Lakes, is being more intentional with gospel conversations. I need to be more like Kira. You know, I, I don't like it when my kids grow up because they have little sayings and then they grow out of those sayings and they become too cool for those sayings. But when Kira was, I don't know, probably three or four, she had this saying where uh, she would say, you know, Daddy, if the Bible says it, we should just do it. And I thought, that's really good. Like, I'm a pastor, I should have come up with that, right? I mean, that's, that's just good. And that's just how the, the church was. If the Bible says it, we'll do it. If this is what God calls us to do, we'll do it. It made them distinct and it set them apart. Hey, Joe just got set on fire for their faith, but do you want me to tell you why he got set on fire and shared the gospel and someone's like, yeah, I want that. You could be set on fire. It doesn't matter. I want that. Only the Lord can move hearts that way. But it's through obedience of being able to share of being able to say this is what it is. And so these three principles are unchanging regardless of culture, right? Like these three of being remarkably passionate and relentlessly committed, or, 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 so radically devoted right, and relentlessly committed and remarkably passionate, those, those three things are unchanging. Maybe the wording can change, but the principles remain constant. Those are the three pillars of the church, right? We need to be all about, we want to be sold out for Jesus, sold out for what the Lord tells us to, we want to submit our lives, we want to be about loving one another, we want to be about encouraging one another, we want to be about community, and then we want to be about sharing the hope that we have in us. And so these things is what makes the church distinct. This is why the church isn't a country club and it's not, it's not a humanitarian uh, organization. It's not a sports team. It's not those things. It's, it's something completely different. And the reasoning is because God has knitted our hearts together and eternity is in mind. And so I, here's a couple of takeaways that I have for us. And I realize this is a very different, like last week I talked about anxiety. I mean, those are some really... Put, put that feather in your cap and here's things that you can do. And if you weren't here last week for the anxiety talk, you should probably go back and listen to it because we all struggle with anxiety, okay? This is about setting a foundation that's gonna set us up for success, making sure that we're all on the same page moving forward. And so here are four things that I think are huge takeaways. Number one, all redeemed believers should be active in a local church. I'm not exactly sure when it happened or how it happened, but there is this belief 
that you can love Jesus and you can be a, a, you, you can be a passionate follower of the Lord and just completely neglect his church. Not exactly sure where that came from because it's definitely not from the Bible. See, in my Bible, the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus died for his bride and we should be connected in with the bride of Christ. It's through community here that we encourage and we worship and we grow together. It's not in isolationism. There is zero evidence in scripture of lone wolf Christianity if you go through the book of Acts. It doesn't happen. Paul always took people with him. He always, we see zero, you should be active in a church. In fact, I would say this, if you are not active in a church, whether you're online or here, or you listen to this podcast later on, I'm telling you, you are in sin. It is wrong to not be connected into the local body. It is wrong. It is not enough to sit at home and watch a podcast. It's not enough. That's not the church. That's a sharpening tool, but it's not the church. Here's the second thing. Submission to the word of God can never be overstated. It can never be overstated. I hope that you hear me say this out of the love that it comes from. I am not here to be your best friend. I'm here to point you to Jesus. Now, I want to be your friend. I do. And I want to love you and I want to shepherd you the best that I can. But if push comes to shove and I have to call out sin or we have to lovingly point you towards what the truth is, I will do it. And I will do it unapologetically. Jeremy Etzin will do it unapologetically. Isaac McCord will do it unapologetically. Larry Christian will do it unapologetically. Why? Because we're called here to shepherd you, to pour into you, to equip you, and to protect you. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes the shepherd has to break the leg of the sheep and carry it back to the flock. But it's not because he wants to. It's because the sheep's just that stubborn sometimes. We have got to submit to the word of God. Thirdly, loving one another cannot happen in isolationism. You cannot say you truly love people if you're, high, if you're a hermit. You've got to be in community. I love Rico Hidalgo. I love what he's done to groups ministry. I love how he's elevated it to a whole new level. I love that we are, we're busting at the seams in most of our groups and we are looking to start new groups. I love that. It's where you get plugged into community. That's where the back door gets closed in the church, getting plugged in. I can't know everyone, but your community can. Fourthly, the gospel is the most important message the church must share with a lost and dying world. The world's a horrible place and it's just getting worse. If I wasn't posting for church, Facebook would be the first thing to go in my life. <laughs> I hate Facebook. I hate Christians who are just posting things left and right on Facebook. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it, I just, it's hard. The world's tough. I hate when a Democratic president gets in office, all the Republicans say the world's gonna burn to hell and I hate when a Republican gets in office that, you know, and God forbids that a, that a uh, independent ever gets in office, I don't know what we're gonna do. So, I hate that. It's the world we live in now. And the only hope we can give is Jesus. 
It's the only thing that I know for certain that can change lives. It's Jesus. It's the only thing that can make an ounce of difference in your life. It's Jesus. It's not your political affiliation. It's not your personal convictions on certain things that's really big right now. And those are all good things. And I'm glad that we all have them. But it's Jesus. And we have to share Jesus with the lost and dying world. So here's a couple steps that I think are very important through the month of August. Here's the first one. I've written a Bible study. It's a four-week Bible study, and it's called Distinctives, and it goes way more in depth. It's a daily Bible study. It takes about 10 minutes to do. Uh, There's an online version as well at slchurch.life, but we've got a bunch of copies back there. And I would encourage you to pick up this. It's completely free. And it will dive into more, not just of what's distinct about the church overall, but what's unique about South Lakes Church, okay? So I would encourage every single person to grab one of these, all right, and to do it daily. I think the second thing that I would encourage everyone to do is this. You need to get in community. You need to get into community. You need to get around people that are less in size than the church. You, you need to be in a house full of people that are going to love each other. And know when things are going poorly. Colin Plain, he's in the front row over here. His wife is a doctor. And she's been posting on our, on our community group message board about what her week's like. I would be hard-pressed saying that anyone's had a worse week than Deanna Plain this week. Holding the hands of loved ones as COVID patients are dying left and right. Trying to speak words of, of life and truth into her interns as she's walking residents through, um, through the program. And she'll just, she'll post like, hey, pray for me. And then, you know, you'll say, hey, what's going on? And then you get like a 16 page paragraph. You know, like, and you're like, I don't even know how to process that. But I'm glad that we're here for her and she knows we're praying for her and she has an outlet. I would not know that. I don't think Deanna's sharing those things if she's not in my community group. I don't. Maybe she is. I don't call her. Maybe, maybe she can tell me I'm wrong, but that's just not stuff you share out loud, like in a big group. Get in community. Try it out. Try it out for at least six weeks. That's why I always tell people, give it six weeks. Thirdly, Grant, I'm glad we don't have a service after this because I'm going long. I apologize. Um, everyone should have received a letter, I hope, in the mail of some sort. If you haven't, it's probably because you're newer or maybe I don't have your address. Um, at Elders Retreat in June, we just kind of did a check spiritually on, on the body as a whole. And we were like, what are we seeing that COVID has done to believers and specifically covenant members of South Lakes? And we were like, you know what? I think we need to offer an opportunity for reminder and for renewal. And so on the last Sunday of this month, I think it's the 29th, I believe. Um, yes, our church will be a church of zero members. And the reason that we're doing this is that we're encouraging all covenant members to think, this is what biblically the Lord calls me to be as a fully functional member of the church. See, it would be really easy for all the elders to go through the list and say, well, let's just go through what everything, everyone's done wrong the last 18 months and how they're, they're living in disobedience. I mean, gosh, who wants to do that? I'd rather be a, be, be a pastor of grace and of second chances. And so covenant renewal is not about looking back on what you have or have not done over the last 18 months. It's an opportunity to say, man, I'm gonna start fresh. 
And I'm going to commit this point forward. On this stage here at 3 o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to be officiating my first 50th wedding renewal ceremony. We have two couples in our church that both have celebrated 50 years of marriage. And I get to stand on this platform. Now, do they have a bad marriage? I don't think they have a bad marriage at all. So why in the world do they need to renew their vows after 50 years? It's just a good reminder. It's just a good, it's symbolic. And that's what the 29th is. It's just symbolic. It's not saying you've been a good member. It's not saying you've been a bad member. It's saying let's just all commit together to march to the same beat of the drum. And if you're not a covenant member, and here's my step that I would say, in September, we're actually offering another class. The first step is to come to attend a, a, a cookout uh, with me and we go through some stuff. And so I would encourage you to at least come and try that out. If you've already gone through that, man, I would encourage you hook up with an elder and, and get interviewed and stuff and, 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 and get ready. And if you can get that knocked out before the 29th, you'll have an opportunity to, to covenant with us. And here's the thing, I think we've got, I don't know, 90-ish covenant members, about half our church are covenant members of adults. I hope the number stays the same. That's a very scary thing as a pastor, right? Like to say, oh, we were a church of 1,000 and then we set the roles and now we're a church of 500. But if it's the more accurate number, is that not the one that we should probably be leaning into? That's a scary thing as a pastor. You know what's scarier though? Putting my head in the sand and pretending that people aren't hurting and letting my pride get in the way of saying if this reset, this renewal, this reminder will help people then it's worth my pride being shot. And that's what it is. It's not a shot across the bow. It's not a shame on you. It's a, you know what, let's together commit. We're marching forward. We're marching forward. And if you're not there, come on, join on in. Let's get on this boat together. Let's march together. Why? Because we're called to be distinctly different. And people's lives are at stake because eternity is what we're aiming for. And we have hope. And the hope comes in the form of a present called Jesus. The question is, have you accepted the gift? Have you placed your faith in Jesus, whether you're online or in person or whatever? Have you given your life to Jesus and said, you know what, I really am a sinner. I really do need saving. And Jesus paid the price. That's my daily prayer for my baby girls at home, all four of them. God, would you just save my girls? Just save them. Who cares if they end up making a lot of money and if they become the best wives in the world? Who cares if they become the first female president? Who cares if they don't have Jesus? That's the mission. And the church is distinctly equipped to carry that out. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus and I pray for my church family. God, I pray, Father, that we would have a desire individually to want to be distinct from the world around us and then collectively that we would want to be distinct from every organization out there in the world. 
that we would not be okay with just meeting the physical needs of people, but that we would don't want to stop until we meet the spiritual needs as well. Father, I pray that you would help us to be reinvigorated with our devotion to the local body here. That we would recognize that isolationism is not biblical. Lone wolf Christianity is anti-Bible. That you call us to be in community together. You call us to share in each other's joys, in each other's pains. You don't call us to be best friends, God, but you do call us to be family. And so, Father, I pray that you would help South Lakes to be distinctly unique from the world around us. Not that we wouldn't stand up against sin, not that we wouldn't point people to the truth, that we would be known as a people who love you with our whole hearts and we point people to the hope that has transformed us. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I've got two questions, one for two different types of people in the room. The first one is this. If you consider yourself a member of the South Lakes family, then my question for you is this. What is the next step in your commitment to the local body? Is it you need to be in God's word daily? Grab a Bible study. Is it that you need to be plugged into community? Talk to Rico. Is it that you need to be more intentional about being the hands and feet of Jesus in your workplace, inviting, sharing the gospel? Commit to that. The second question is this, for those that you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're not a believer, God, my prayer is simply, uh, my, 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 my prayer for you is simply this, guys. Is that today would be the day of salvation. And today that you would simply say, Jesus, come live in my heart. I am a sinner in need of saving. Come be king. And Romans 10, 13 promises us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I don't know which boat you're in, but I would ask, what's the next level of commitment look like? what does salvation look like for you here? When you're done kind of talking to the Lord about these things, I would invite you to stand and join as we're going to have the bulk of our worship time now. But not until you're done wrestling. Let's respond in the only way that Scripture says we should after we've been rightly taught and to worship the object of our faith. Grant, let's go ahead and let's sing. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.